guys, I'm Chastity, and you're listening to the Ancient Conspiracies Podcast, where we connect the origins of some of the most popular conspiracy theories to biblical history. Well, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're venturing away from our timeline, what I like to call the crash course of esoteric biblical history, to discuss the spring feasts of Israel. And if you've been following my podcast, we did this same thing in fall. And it isn't because I'm promoting Judaism or believe that it's in any way superior to Christianity. First and foremost, Jesus was himself a Jew, and he observed these feasts. He didn't do away with them, nor did he tell us that we were absolved from them. And there's a reason for this. These feasts were commanded by God for his followers, and they weren't restricted only to the Jews. I think that's a key piece of confusion that's often circulated. They're called the feasts of Israel because at the time, the tribes of Israel were the only people following God, while everyone else in the world was pagan. Therefore, they were his chosen people. And as a part of that covenant, he gave them specific specific knowledge and commanded them to observe certain dates on the calendar for a very specific reason. Now, we touched on this reason in fall, and you're welcome to go back and listen to that in-depth explanation. Also, if you're a member of my private blog, I have a blog detailing this as well with my reference material. But the reason that these feasts were so important is because they were divine appointments set by God, instructing his people to be at the right place at the right time on a future date when he would return. And until the fulfillment of these feasts came to pass, they were essentially commanded to practice them yearly in preparation, like a dress rehearsal. So there are seven major feasts that God commanded his people to observe. Three in the spring, three in the fall, and then Pentecost, which connects the two sets. Now, it's widely believed that Christ fulfilled the spring feast when he came the first time, and he will fulfill the fall feast when he returns again. And we discuss these fall feasts in episodes 3, 4, and 5. If you haven't heard them, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to the incredible history and prophetic nature of the fall feasts, one of which even connects to the actual birthday of Christ, which proves that they were given for a purpose in connection with the arrival of Christ which is why they are applicable to Christians. And on a side note, this just shows you the level of deception that's been stirred up by the devil. Whereas the Jews observe the feasts, they don't follow Christ and are therefore missing the crucial link to the fulfillment of these feasts. And Christians do follow Christ, but we've been led to believe that these feasts are for the Jews, so we don't even observe them. In essence, we're two siblings, each carrying a portion of the truth. What a mess, and how proud the devil must be of this handiwork. And that's not his only handiwork. Before we dive into the fulfillment of the Spring Feast today, I want to start with what's widely considered the Christian version of these feasts, Easter. Have you ever wondered what Easter bunnies and colored eggs have to do with the resurrection of Christ? The short answer is, they have nothing to do with Christ. And before we go further, I want to put a little plug here, like I tend to do when I'm discussing super controversial topics 
like holidays or religion. This podcast is a judgment-free zone. People get very offended when you challenge their deeply rooted traditions. And I remember years ago when I began to question this connection myself and shared my curiosity with who I believed to be a close friend. The questions that I was struggling to justify within myself, and I just wanted a second opinion, another grounded perspective were taken as a direct attack on their character. What was never directed at them personally was taken deeply personal for whatever reason, and it damaged the friendship. And it also caused me to keep my questions and my knowledge to myself for years. Easter is one of those holidays that has become larger than even Christmas. Families who don't attend church all year will appear in service on Easter Sunday. And it's for this reason that I just want to preface today's episode by reminding you that your walk with God is yours. And I have no interest in condemning you or trying to make you feel convicted or conflicted. My podcast has always been designed to shine some light on the deceptions that we've been fed and at times continue to perpetuate. It's meant to open blind eyes to a history that maybe you were previously unaware of. Today, I'm simply bringing truth to the table, and you can do with it what you will. So with that, let's explore the pagan roots of Easter, starting with its name. Many people believe that the word Easter is the English translation of the name Ishtar. Others connect it to Yoster, the German goddess of spring, both of which were considered ancient fertility goddesses. And fertility is often associated with spring due to everything returning to life after the death of winter. In reality, both of these goddesses are actually connected and represent the same woman. She's often referred to throughout the Bible as the Queen of Heaven. She was the wife of the oldest pagan god in the ancient world. In Mesopotamia, they were known as Nimrod and Semiramis. In Phoenicia, they became known as Baal and Ashtoreth, or Ashtarte, or Ishtar. In Egypt, they were known as Osiris and Isis. In Greece, they were known as Zeus and Aphrodite. In Rome, they were known as Jupiter and Venus. And in Germany, they were Yoster and Demuzi or Tammuz, which is a name found in the Bible that I'll expound on in just a moment. And this history has been the foundation of my podcast. Together, they formed the ancient pagan power couple. And with the birth of their son, they formed the holy trinity of the ancient pagan world. Father, Son, and Queen of Heaven. A counterfeit trinity that mocked the holy trinity of Almighty God. And when this couple infiltrated a culture, they did so with the intent to drive God completely out of it. Nimrod challenged the deity of God Almighty, and the book of Judges says that he literally caused Israel to forget God, like spiritual amnesia. And his wife was well known for overturning the biblical morals surrounding sexuality. 
And I'm going to insert a warning here that the information that I'm about to share regarding Easter is not necessarily child appropriate. In fact, parts of it are rather graphic in nature. But this information really needs to be shared so that you get the full scope of what this holiday represents. And it's for that reason that I just want to give you a heads up that most of the remainder of our Easter talk is probably not something that little ears should hear due to its disturbing nature. But I'll leave that to your discretion. So this ancient fertility goddess encompassed all things leading to the perversion of sexuality. In every account, this ancient pagan goddess was known as a prostitute or harlot. In fact, the word prostitute translates into Greek as porne, where we derive the English word porn or pornography. And in Greece, she gave birth to the god Eros, where we derive the English term erotic. She was known for encouraging men to dress like women and women to dress like men, confusing gender itself and encouraging homosexual relationships even among her priests. Now, if you remember, the ancient pagan cultures were sun worshipers, and therefore Nimrod was considered the sun god, the god of the west, the setting sun, making Ishtar the goddess of the east, the sunrise, giving birth to the sun every morning. As I said before, there are varying accounts of this story based on each civilization, but the general scope is that after Nimrod died, his wife became pregnant and claimed that the spirit of Nimrod impregnated her. And just to give you a heads up, you're going to see a parallel here, the counterfeit story that evil concocted in the pagan world to mimic the plan which God had already set in place. And this supernatural conception is a mockery of the conception story of Christ and his mother, Mary, who was also supernaturally impregnated. Whereas one was impregnated by the Holy Spirit of Almighty God, the other claimed to be impregnated by the spirit of the pagan God. And just to drive this point home in an outrageously blasphemous turn of events, this ancient fertility goddess was associated in numerous cultures with the constellation Virgo, the Virgin. Again, showing a mockery of the plan of God because this fertility goddess is literally the whore of Babylon mentioned in the book of Revelation, a far cry from a virgin birth. So at sunrise every year on the Sunday following the first full moon after the spring equinox, Ashtoreth or Astarte or Ishtar as she was known, had her own sunrise ceremony to celebrate the conception of her son. It became known as Ishtar Sunday. And at this ceremony, sacred sexual rituals were performed. It was believed in ancient Mesopotamia that the female orgasm of Ishtar brought a divine fertile energy onto the land, ensuring good crops and productive herds. And this ritual included what became known as sacred prostitution, which existed for thousands of years in Mesopotamia and was widely viewed more as a religious act of devotion to Ishtar rather than for pleasure. 
It eventually encompassed young virgins being brought in and impregnated on her altar, and afterwards sacrificing the three-month-old babies that were born from the previous year's ceremony. If you remember, this ancient fertility goddess was the wife of Baal, as he was known in Phoenicia. And Baal was widely known throughout the ancient world to demand child sacrifice. Now, during Ishtar's ceremony, people would worship the eggs of Ishtar, which conceived the pagan son of God. And they were said to have coated the fertile eggs that represented Ishtar in the blood of these sacrificed infants. And just in case you're curious, Easter was the celebration of the pagan son of God's conception, but his actual birthday fell during the winter solstice on December 25th. You can listen to my Christmas episode for more information on that. Now, eggs have always been considered symbols of birth or fertility. The Egyptians hung decorated eggs in their temple to represent their fertility goddess Isis, who they believed birthed Horus in the form of an egg. In fact, the ancient Egyptians believed that Ra, the sun god, another alias of Nimrod, was hatched himself from a cosmic egg. And this is perpetuated throughout this ancient pagan trinity story, that the sun god Osiris impregnated his wife Isis, who then birthed the son of God, Horus, in an egg. The father and son of this pagan trinity are often interchangeable in the stories, with the father having the same history as his son, in a similar way that Christ was the son of God, but he is also God. They are two identities, but one and the same deity, if that makes sense. And that's what's been replicated within paganism. Now, the Romans also used decorated eggs in processions honoring Ishtar. The Druids of Ireland, too, recognized eggs as sacred emblems. Gauls, Chinese, and Persians also used colored eggs for their ancient pagan spring festivals to represent rebirth. During the Middle Ages, Europeans collected different colored bird eggs from nests to use as charms against evil and bring them good fortune. In the 1500s in Germany, some people believed that bunnies laid red eggs on Holy Thursday and multicolored eggs the night before Easter. Their fertility goddess, Yoster, who we mentioned earlier, was symbolized as a rabbit, which is where we get the egg-laying rabbit from. This tradition came to America in the 1700s with the Pennsylvania Dutch, who immigrated from Germany, and it evolved into chocolate Easter bunnies and eggs during the American Civil War. It's no coincidence, however, that universally the most popular color of Easter eggs is red. Even the White House in years past has promoted the official color of Easter eggs as red. And it doesn't end there. There's a whole other aspect to Easter which also connects to Ishtar's son. In Germany, the fertility goddess Yoster was married to Damuzi, or Tammuz, as he was known in the Bible. But in the biblical account, she was also known as his mother. And this mother-son image was widely promoted throughout the ancient world. Statues were depicted of this duo, the bare-breasted fertility goddess and her baby, which were eventually adopted by the Catholic Church. 
And as we've mentioned in previous episodes, the Catholic Church had a habit of conquering paganism for Christ. And instead of destroying all the pagan relics like God commanded the ancient Israelites to do in the Old Testament, the Catholics simply converted them for God. A perfect example of this is converting the Pantheon in Rome, the original temple dedicated to all pagan gods, into what is now a Catholic church. And this is exactly what happened with the ancient pagan statues and artwork of the biblical Semiramis and Tammuz, which are now widely worshipped as the very depiction of Mother Mary and baby Jesus. Now, as Tammuz got older, he and his mother grew to have a sexual relationship. If you remember, he was considered to be the reincarnation of his father, her husband. And therefore, he was considered her son, but also her husband. And this illicit relationship is actually the origins of Cupid from Valentine's Day. Cupid is also named Zoroaster. Zoro translates the seed of, and Aster is a reference to Ashtoreth or Ishtar. Or if you add an E to the beginning of Aster, you literally get Easter all of which are the same person. So Cupid was the baby son of Ishtar, or Yoster, in the German account. Now, according to Babylonian legend, Tammuz grows to be an avid hunter. And in his 40th year, he was killed by a wild boar on a hunting trip. And his death was a major event in the ancient pagan world. In fact, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 8, verse 14, we're told that Ezekiel was taken to the entrance of the north gate of the temple. And he saw women there, quote, mourning the god Tammuz, unquote. And just for reference, this happened over 500 years before Christ. And this mourning became part of the yearly tradition. In commemoration of his death at 40 years old, his mother commanded that her followers fast something of importance to them for 40 days, each year on the anniversary of his death. It was believed that whatever they gave up, Tammuz would be able to enjoy in the afterlife. And during this time, it became custom for people to also stop eating meat because he was killed by an animal. And this is what became known as Lent in the Roman Catholic tradition. And here's a little fun fact for you. Historically, the Catholic Church has called on its members to give up rich foods during this time. So the day before Lent begins is really the last opportunity to self-indulge. And therefore, it became known as Fat Tuesday, which in French translates Mardi Gras. And what about those famous hot crossed buns, which are an Easter tradition? Well, it's believed that they may be a modification of the original cakes that were baked in pagan cultures for Ishtar, who was referenced as the Queen of Heaven in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 7, we're told of his annoyance at the women of Jerusalem who were baking cakes for the Queen of Heaven. Towards the end of Jeremiah's ministry in chapter 44, when he lived in Egypt, once more we find him complaining about the women making cakes for the Queen of 
of heaven. And these cakes were supposedly marked or stamped with her image. Now the Saxons or the Germans were known for marking buns with a cross, which represented the four phases of the moon to offer to their fertility goddess, Yoster. And just like the chocolate bunnies and eggs that were brought in from German tradition, this too became widely promoted and adopted into Christianity. And just to prove that it was Tammuz's death and not Christ's, which influenced Easter, at the end of the 40-day fast, there would be a feast in which they would kill a wild boar in remembrance of Tammuz, the very animal that was believed to have killed him during his hunting trip. And this is where we get our tradition of Easter ham, proving that this practice originated from pagan influence. According to God, ham was considered unclean, so God's people would have never eaten ham, including Christ, who was himself a Jew. It just drives home the fact that this entire holiday was adopted into Christianity as Catholicism spread and attempted to make Christianity more accessible to the pagans. The church ultimately compromised by allowing the pagans to continue to celebrate their beloved traditions, but for Jesus instead. And the ripple effect of this compromise fundamentally changed Christianity, making it really more of a modified version of paganism. Before we realized it, chocolate Easter bunnies and baskets full of colorful eggs became a more popular tradition to remember the resurrection. But the resurrection of who? It's no coincidence that the death of Tammuz falls so closely to the celebration of his conception. His conception ultimately became associated with his reincarnation or his resurrection. The celebration of Easter, therefore, began to encompass the death, burial, and reincarnation of Tammuz, which just so happened to fall during the exact same time of year when God had preordained the death, burial, and resurrection of his own son, which the Jews had been practicing in preparation for since the Exodus. It just goes to show that Satan was present when the plan was given to the Jews, and he essentially beat God to the punch and created an almost virtually identical replica of the same story, down to even the most minute of details. And the harsh reality is that he manipulated the good intentions of the early church as a way to infiltrate our doctrine. And today, most Christians have no idea of this history, nor do they question the biblical origins of these traditions. In fact, they get very defensive when confronted with how these fit into the biblical narrative. Mostly because we don't know how to live without making an Easter basket each year or how to restructure our family gatherings and our lifelong deeply rooted traditions. So instead, we continue to do what's comfortable and just tell ourselves, well, that's not what it means to me. Years ago, Pastor Jim Staley with Passion for Truth Ministries gave a sermon on Queen Esther that completely opened my eyes to a different perspective on this. If you remember the story of Queen Esther, all of the women were gathered together to go before the king and try to catch his eye. In the midst of all these women trying on outfits that they felt flattered themselves and that they thought the king would admire, 
Esther went straight to the king's eunuch, the very man who knew the king's preference. What she thought was flattering didn't matter. What mattered was what he thought. And many times we get caught up as the church by saying, well, I worship God in my own way, or yeah, I do that, but that's not what it means to me. The unfortunate reality is that it doesn't really matter what it means to you. What matters is what it means to him. What does God see when we carve up a ham on Easter and sprinkle colored eggs all over our yard for our children to find? Does he see Christ? Or does he see the innocent children that were sacrificed whose blood once dyed those eggs? Do you think he brushes off our blissful ignorance as innocent? Or do you think he recognizes the depth of deception and says to himself, my people perish for lack of knowledge? And my friends, I hate to be the bearer of this bad news. But the church needs to hear the truth, and the truth needs to set free those who are held captive in prisons of deception that they can't even see. And we need to stop perpetuating this for the next generation, because Jesus is coming soon. And how will we ever be able to recognize him if we can't even recognize that Easter bunnies and egg hunts have no connection to the resurrection of Christ? Or Christmas trees and Santa Claus have no connection to the birth of Christ. We are so deceived about these symbols that misrepresent him that the church is going to run straight into the arms of his enemy instead. It's time to wake up. And I'll be the first to tell you that it's a process and I'm not perfect. My family has celebrated these holidays like every other Christian in the world. And it's a challenge to weed out those deeply held traditions and to be that one fish swimming against the current, to be the one family member who doesn't participate, to be misunderstood by the very people who should be believing the same thing, who are reading the same word and yet are choosing to go the way of the world, the broad path and the wide gate, the popular choice that leads to destruction or in this case, deception. And that's why today I want you to know the truth. And I'm about to share with you God's version of the story, the version that comes with a future and a hope because of the plan he laid out and gave to his people so long ago. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, the magnitude of these feasts is encompassed by the fact that God gave these feasts to his followers so that they would always and forever be at the right place at the right time on a future date for his return. And in the meantime, they were commanded to practice yearly and be ready. And therefore, both the spring feast and the fall feast point to the return of Christ, which is why they are applicable to Christians and not just Jews. Now, in episodes three, four, and five, we discussed in depth how Christ will fulfill the fall feasts when he returns in the future. And we have this hope because of how he fulfilled the spring feasts when he came the first time down to the letter. 
Now, when you hear the term Passover, many people think of the original Passover, where the angel of death passed over the houses of Egypt and killed the firstborn children. The Jews have been celebrating Passover in remembrance of that event for thousands of years. Every year on Passover, a lamb is slain in commemoration of the lamb that was slain, whose blood was used to cover the doorpost, which signaled the angel of death to pass over the home, hence the name of the holy day. And let me just explain the gravity of this feast for ancient Israel. Passover was one of just three feasts on the Hebrew calendar where all Jews, not just the males, were required to travel and present themselves at the temple. Jews from around the globe would flock to the temple for this holy event. Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian who was born just four years after the crucifixion of Christ, claimed that Jerusalem's population was approximately 600,000 at the time of Jesus. But during Passover, because all of the Jews had to be there, there would be 2.5 million people in the city of Jerusalem. It was a huge party in which they literally slaughtered 250,000 lambs in one day, one lamb for every 10 people. And this was in accordance with Exodus 12, in which God tells Moses, quote, Speak to the children of Israel and tell them that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, taking into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animal you choose must be a year-old male without defect. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when the entire community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight, unquote. So they were commanded to choose a year-old unblemished male and to take care of it for four days when they would sacrifice it on the evening of Nisan 14. Now, all of the sheep used for temple sacrifice were essentially raised in Bethlehem. Sound familiar? Jesus was also born in Bethlehem. In fact, Bethlehem was just south of the temple, literally a stone's throw away from Jerusalem. Coincidentally, Bethlehem literally translates the house of bread, and Christ called himself the bread of life. So on the 10th day of Nisan, in accordance with God's command in Exodus, it was tradition for the priests to literally carry the Passover lamb for the nation through the north gate of the temple, singing Psalms 118. And just so you know, every feast, the Jews sing a psalm, typically Psalms 113 through 118. These are their hymnal. In fact, they call it the Hallel, where we get the name Hallelujah from. So I'm going to do a side-by-side -side comparison here to show you how every step of this was fulfilled. In John chapter 12, we're told that six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany to dine with Lazarus, who he had just raised from the dead. This would have been the evening of Nisan the 8th, going into Nisan the 9th. Now, Jewish days begin at sundown instead of sunrise. So let's call it the beginning of Nisan 9. 
In verse 12, we're told that the next day, which would be the beginning of Nisan 10, a crowd arrived at the temple because they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And let's face it, a crowd was likely already gathered because Nisan 10 was the date when the priests would carry the Passover lamb for the nation to the temple. It was a huge event and the crowd would be singing Psalms 118, a portion of which says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what do we see in scripture? When the same crowd sees Jesus coming, they took palm branches and ran out to meet him, singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On the exact same day that the priest is carrying the sacrificial lamb to the temple through the north gate, and the crowd is singing Psalms 118, Christ is coming to the temple through the eastern gate, and a group has gathered who were singing the same thing to him. Little did they know that Christ was the very reason that they had been performing this ritual for thousands of years. He was the fulfillment of it. Now, when Christ rode through the temple and was praised by the people, this upset the Pharisees, and they conspired to find fault with him. In Mark chapter 12, we're told that they sent the Pharisees and Herodians to try and ensnare him by finding fault with what he was preaching. In Mark chapter 14, we're told that the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. In fact, many who gave false testimony against him, their statements didn't match up. And in Luke chapter 23, Pilate told the chief priests that he couldn't find any fault in Christ, nor did Herod. And there's a reason that these accounts were placed in scripture during the four days that the priests were tending the sacrificial lamb and searching for blemishes. Remember, the lamb had to be unblemished. Christ was also being searched for blemishes and came up completely without fault. Now, in Matthew chapter 26, we're told that on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked him where he wanted to eat for Passover. The festival of unleavened bread lasts for a few days and it begins with Passover. Therefore, the famous Last Supper took place on the night that started the day of Passover. Remember, their days start at sundown. And at this Passover cedar, Christ took bread and broke it. And this isn't a loaf of bread like you traditionally see in the artwork portraying this Last Supper, or if you've ever participated in a communion service where they've made homemade bread. This was the festival of unleavened bread. Leavening represented sin, and the festival of unleavened bread represented the taking away of sin, which is exactly how Christ fulfilled it. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So Christ took unleavened bread and broke it, and he told them to take and eat of it because it represented his body, not only unleavened without sin, but that he was signifying it would also be broken. And then he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he passed it around for them all to drink from and told them that it represented the blood of his covenant, which would be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. 
in this moment documented in scripture, we literally witness the transformation of this feast, which had been observed for thousands of years. And he's revealing to his disciples that he was the fulfillment of it. His body would be broken and his blood would be poured out for the forgiveness of sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he tells them, quote, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, unquote. Now, this gets taken a bit out of context because pastors take this scripture and reference it during communion, some of which hold communion monthly. Catholics even have the option to partake in what's called the Eucharist daily. But Christ wasn't telling them to start a whole new ritual and remember him through it. They were celebrating Passover. So naturally, the next time they would perform this ritual would be on the same occasion the following year, Passover. And in the same way that they had been celebrating Passover for thousands of years in remembrance of their ancestors being freed from slavery, Jesus was telling them to remember him on Passover going forward and to commemorate his sacrifice, which freed us from the bondage of sin. Now, we're told at the close of the cedar that they sung a hymn and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. Remember, they sung the Psalms as their hymnal and Psalm 118 is the psalm that's traditionally sung on Passover. It starts with, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. It continues further down. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. The Lord is with me. He is my helper. And even further down, the Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Do you know what the Hebrew word for salvation is? It's Yeshua, the Hebrew name of Jesus. They were literally singing in his presence. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. The Lord is with me. He is my helper. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my Yeshua. The psalm continues. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join the festival procession up to the horns of the altar. Some translations say, bind the sacrifice with cords, even to the horns of the altar. And remember, this was traditionally sung while they were preparing the sacrificial lamb for the feast. But this specific year, they were singing it in the presence of the ultimate sacrificial lamb on their way out to the Mount of Olives, where he was ultimately betrayed. We're told in Matthew 27 that early in the morning on the day of Passover, the chief priests and elders planned out how to have Jesus executed. So they bound Christ and led him away. If we skip forward a few hours to 9 a.m., as was tradition, the priests were binding the Passover lamb to the horns of the altar for the morning sacrifice, exactly as was sung in the psalm. In Mark chapter 25, we're told that in the third hour, which would have been 9 a.m., the same time that the priests were binding the Passover lamb to the horns of the altar, Christ, too, was being bound to the cross. 
Scripture goes on to say that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness had fallen over all the land. And this is significant because the ninth hour was the time of the evening sacrifice, when the lamb would officially be slain for the nation. And it was custom for the high priest at the exact moment that the lamb was slain for him to call out, it is finished. And in the same way, at the ninth hour, we're told that at the exact moment of the evening sacrifice, Christ too proclaimed, it is finished, as he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It was the moment when he took on the sins of the world and his blood washed us all clean. We're told that the curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from mankind was torn in two from top to bottom at the very moment of his death, signifying that we were now able to access the presence of God without the need for an intermediary or high priest. And a pastor made an interesting observation that there was also an earthquake that happened, which was believed to cause the veil to tear. But he claims that had an earthquake been the cause, the veil would have torn from the bottom upwards and instead it tore from the top down, verifying that God himself initiated this reunion. We became the new temple of God. In keeping with the original tradition, on the first Passover, when the firstborn of Egypt were slain, we're told that the very next day the children of Israel were freed from their bondage and left Egypt in such a rush that their bread didn't have time to rise, while the Egyptians buried their children. So too was Christ slain on Passover, and he was buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, taking with him the sins of the world. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is traditionally celebrated with families removing all leavening from their homes, all yeast and yeast bread products, in memory of the momentous occasion when they were freed from bondage. But leavening throughout scripture was widely regarded as symbolic of sin. So for centuries before Christ arrived, the Jews were actually practicing removing the sin from their homes. And this removal of sin led to their freedom of spiritual bondage. As I said before, we became the temple of God. First Peter chapter 2 verse 5 says that we are the spiritual house of the Lord. And this is verified in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which says that we are the temple of God. And God wants to get the leaven out. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 rebukes the church in Corinth for having the sin of fornication. And Paul says, quote, do you not know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, unquote. He was saying that a single drop of poison would contaminate the entire mixture. Get rid of those things that separate you from God so that you can be washed clean and your sins forgiven because of the sacrifice of Christ. 
And here's a little fun fact for you. The word unleavened in Hebrew is matzah, which is why matzah crackers are traditionally eaten during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Christ was sacrificed on Passover, buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and three days later he rose again on the Feast of First Fruits. In the original account, God tells Moses in Leviticus 23, quote, When you enter the land that I'm going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain that you harvest. He will wave the sheaf before the Lord so that it will be accepted on your behalf, unquote. And God commanded that this take place on the day after the Sabbath, which would be a Sunday following unleavened bread. And here's yet another parallel to the story of Jesus. We're told in Matthew 28 that, quote, At the end of the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to visit the tomb, unquote. Literally, the Sunday after the Sabbath, following his death, in the same way that the children of Israel were instructed to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits. At the moment the priests were waving the first sheaf of the barley harvest before the Lord, Christ rose from the grave as the first fruits of the spiritual harvest before the Lord. You see, the first sheaf presented to the priest was a representation of the whole harvest. It served as a pledge that the rest of the harvest would be the same quality. Christ's resurrection represented the future harvest to come. And because he was raised from the dead, we have a hope that we too will one day be caught up together with him and made new. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20 says, quote, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. Because of Adam, all were condemned to die. Yet in Christ, all will be made alive." Unquote. The resurrection of Jesus is the crux of Christianity. Without it, he's just an ordinary man with simply a powerful message. But in conquering death, he is exalted above all other gods that have ever been or ever will be. And there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess this truth that he is the one true God who was present at creation and who loved his creation so much that he dwelt among us. He died for us and he conquered death to bring us everlasting life. And I can't think of a more beautiful reason to celebrate the spring feasts. So I guess the final question you might be asking yourselves is how can you switch over? How should we or could we observe Passover as Christians? And I'll be the first to tell you that I don't have an answer for you. The way that you personally observe is going to depend on your set of circumstances and how deeply you want to go with it. I think the most simplistic way of observing Passover is sharing communion as Christ instructed the disciples to do. 
and taking the day to remember him and express gratitude for his ultimate sacrifice. For those of us with children, this might look a little different. I'm on a journey of my own, which is why I can tell you that I don't have all the answers. Last year was the first year that I decided to really introduce Passover to my child. Let me tell you, it's hard to introduce the plagues of Egypt or the death of our Savior as something exciting when they've already been exposed to hunting for brightly colored eggs filled with treats. I'm not going to lie, it's kind of hard to follow that act. But what I did was buy a children's book, the old Arch brand Bible books for children on the plagues of Egypt. And I went down to the dollar store and bought fake flies and gummy frogs and all the things that replicated the plagues. And as we read the story, we explored each plague leading up to the final plague with the blood of the lamb. The year before that, we covered our front doorpost with red ribbon to represent being covered by the blood. It's a great segue to introduce how Christ also observed this feast. And then you can have your own little communion service, a last supper, if you will. I've seen people make adorable resurrection gardens with children. It's a little hard to explain. I recommend you Google the term resurrection garden. But it's basically a mini pot or a ceramic cup turned on its side, placed on a plate and covered with potting soil to look like a cave on the side of a mountain. You can make crosses with sticks and plant seeds in the soil. Put a tiny figurine inside the cave to represent Jesus being buried and close it up with a rock. And three days later, have your children wake up to Jesus missing and the rock rolled to the side. There are even fun treats called resurrection rolls where you wrap up a large marshmallow in crescent roll dough. During baking, the marshmallow dissolves and you could tie that to Christ's resurrection as well. You could even do a movie night, curl up on the couch with popcorn and watch the old Charleston Heston movie, The Ten Commandments, if you think your children might sit through it or be interested. These are all simple ways to get children involved and excited about the sacrifice of Christ while competing with Easter eggs and baskets full of candy. Another great suggestion would be to participate in some form or fashion with unleavened bread and tie it to the significance of his sacrifice taking away our sins. That's a hugely significant takeaway from this feast. So those are just suggestions to give you some guidance if you're just starting on this journey. And for those who may be experienced and have other suggestions, I'd absolutely love to hear them. Join my Facebook group if you're on social media and share how you observe Passover as a Christian. Or you can contact me through my blog at ancientconspiracies.net and I'll be happy to share your suggestions with others. This year, Passover begins at sundown on April the 5th, and the Feast of First Fruits falls on Sunday, April the 9th. And that's where I'm going to conclude today. I hope today's episode wasn't too traumatic for you <laughs> and that you are walking away with a little bit of knowledge that maybe you didn't have before. Next episode, we're going to venture into strange territory and talk about the Large Hadron Collider at CERN in Geneva, Switzerland. There's a possible connection with the research happening at CERN and a very specific event straight out of the book of Revelation. We're going to talk about portals, other dimensions, and how they connect to the bottomless pit. It's an episode that is certain to blow your mind. 
As I said earlier, my blog is ancientconspiracies.net, where I share news headlines pertaining to biblical prophecy. You can also sign up to become a member of my private blog and gain access to all of my resources through that website. And just to let you know, I've been stalled on getting all of my existing episodes uploaded. So it's for that reason that membership will remain $5 a month until I'm caught up. So if you're interested in accessing my resources for past, present, or future episodes, now would be the time to become a member. If you're not interested in the resources but still would like to support my efforts, please consider becoming a listener supporter. There's a link in the description of today's episode if listener support is something that you're interested in. But if not, please consider leaving me a review on whatever platform you're using. Reviews bring credibility for those who aren't familiar with my show, and the feedback brings me reassurance that my work is not in vain. I love hearing what you have to say. And as always, hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, and share this podcast with a friend. We'll see you next time.